Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Well, hey, welcome back from Sailor Weekend, 4th of July weekend. It's good to see everybody. I know a bunch of people were traveling and out of town, so welcome home. And uh, it's just good to be back in church this morning. So we had a, a full weekend ourselves, a full week and weekend. We did a bunch. We had parties and family and friends. We went to the pool a few times. Um, we had baseball, and then we had some more baseball. And then we think we had some more baseball, but it was good. And then, uh, and then I think we did, we did something else in the past few days. Oh, yeah, we bought a church building. So that's, that is so cool, guys. We are so excited for what that season is going to look like, and we can't wait to open it up and have all of you there with us. So uh, some of you have heard this story. So last week, our, our vehicle was in the shop, and they had it for like a week. And so the dealership brought us a, a loaner vehicle. And uh, with five of us, there's only so many vehicles that will fit five comfortably. And uh, as probably many of you know, one of those vehicles is a minivan. And me and minivans have a, a very love-hate, actually there's no love, it's mostly just a hate relationship. Uh, but nonetheless, the dealership brought me a navy blue town and country Chrysler minivan. I think this thing was probably 2010, 2011, and it was sweet. And so I got to drive that all week long. And so as I mentioned, we decided to go to the water park one day, me and the fam. And uh, we went to the Chillicothe Water Park, which, by the way, is actually pretty cool. And um, so we, 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 you know, wake up that morning and we're going to load everybody up. So we got the kids. Kids got the flip-flops and the swimsuits, the water wings, the goggles. I think one of my kids had a snorkel. Uh, we had our swimsuits on, and, and so we pile up in the minivan. We got everybody buckled up, and we were on our way. And, of course, we got to listen to the, the Christian music, right? So we got, got the Chris, Christian music on. So we're, we're jamming in the minivan. But before we can go to the water park, we got to stop and get some lunch. And where does a minivan full of Christians go for lunch? Absolutely. Absolutely. I knew we were doing something right here. Chick-fil-A. So we pull up to the Chick-fil-A, we pull into the drive-thru, and I just, I had this moment, you guys. I had this moment, and I'm in the drive-thru, and I'm looking in the rearview mirror, which minivans have these things, it's like they've got the rearview mirror, you guys know this. The mini, they, they got the rearview mirror, but then they also have like this weird drop-down rearview mirror, so you can see all your kids. So that was kind of cool, I guess. So I'm, I'm looking in the back, and my kids are all back there, all dressed up. They got SPF 80 on that looks like paint primer it just doesn't rub in we got the christian music playing and it just it hit me i had this moment it was like pure joy that i was with my family but then it was also this moment where it was like if there was any ounce of thought that i was still a cool late 20s early 30s guy it was absolutely crushed in that moment i'm just like i, I had this voice in my head that was like kip you have reached full dad. Like this is full on dad status. The only way that I could have been more dad would have been, I, I don't wear glasses, but like if I had glasses and then the sunglasses that go over the glasses, yeah, that's full dad. But here's, here's how you know if you are a legitimate dad. 
Do you know how you do that? The way you know you're a legitimate dad is if you have a pair of crispy white boys. Do you guys know what crispy white boys are? <laughs> that is a full dad shoe. And if you want to go like next full dad, you have two pairs of these. One that are covered in grass stains for your yard work and another pair for when you go to the old country buffet with the wife. <laughs> crispy white boys. You know there's a whole Instagram page dedicated to pictures of dads wearing these? I follow that one. I am not on it. I do not own a pair. That's, I, I'm full dad, but I'm not like veteran, you know, expert dad. Yeah, Christmas is coming. That's right. So I'm in the drive-thru, back to my store. I'm in the drive-thru, and we pull up to the Chick-fil-A, and we give them our order, right? And it's like five individual orders. And that's the thing about Chick-fil-A. You can roll up on a Chick-fil-A and give them an order with like 50 things on it, and what happens? They get it right every time. They repeat it back to you. They give it to you right. I'm not trying to throw shade on Starbucks, but Starbucks is like the antithesis of Chick-fil-A. You roll up on a Starbucks, and, I, and I'll do this like on my way out of town. I'm going to get a cup of coffee. I'm going to be in the car for a couple hours. You'll roll up on a Starbucks, and I'll be up there. I'll be like, hey, I want a venti hot black Americano, and you'll just be greeted with like 30 seconds of radio silence. It's just like, Hello? Is it, oh, yeah. And then this guy will come on. He'll be like, hey, yeah, welcome to Starbucks. Yeah, I got your order right here. A grande double frap with extra foam soy latte. <laughs> like, dude, no. A venti hot black Americano. And then he'll be like, okay, yeah. You want cream with that? <laughs> if I wanted cream, I would have said, I want cream. <laughs> and then he'll be like, hey, can I, get a, can I get a name for your order? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, Kip. All right, Jeff, that'll be $3.95. We'll see you up at the window. Every time, every time, except for this morning, of course. They didn't do it this morning. But anyways, you give Chick-fil-A your order, and they nail it. And then, you know, because we're good Christian folk, I was like, hey, thank you. And what happens when you say thank you at Chick-fil-A? My pleasure. My pleasure. Absolutely. So she says my pleasure over the radio, and as we're pulling away, I'm just like, man, this is what heaven's going to be like. You got a, all your family with this. You got people saying my pleasure to everything. It's going to be a beautiful, beautiful place. I'm going somewhere with this Chick-fil-A story, so hold on. Just, just stick tight with me here. So the original Chick-fil-A was in Rome, Georgia, and it's still there today. In fact, the original Chick-fil-A is a place called the Dwarf House, and they have this little like entrance for dwarfs, I guess. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's kind of a weird name, but it's in Rome, Georgia. I've eaten, I've eaten there a number of times. Heidi's eaten there a number of times. And for years, Chick-fil-A was known for one thing, tasty chicken sandwiches. But in recent times, Chick-fil-A has been caught up in kind of a cultural and political nightmare. They've become the center of a controversy. And in particular, Chick-fil-A, kind of starting in around 2011, became almost the centerpiece of the straight versus LGBT community. And this all kind of came to a head in 2011. Dan Cathy, the son of Truett Cathy, who started Chick-fil-A, was in an interview. And they were interviewing him in particular because they wanted to know how it was that Chick-fil-A was outgrowing all of their competitors, yet they were closed a whole day 
in comparison to when their competitors weren't. And yet they were kind of outpacing them in their growth. And so they were asking Dan kind of all these questions about his business model and why this all worked. And then in the middle of the interview, the interviewer asked Dan, he says, hey, what's your stance on gay marriage? Now, it was, a, it was an odd question to ask. There's no question about that. Um, in particular, because why would you ask this guy what his stance is on gay marriage on this interview that was about the Chick-fil-A business? But what we know is that the interviewer knew that Chick-fil-A was a, a conservative-led, Christian-led organization, and that it was likely to draw out a response that would be good for the interview. And so Dan kind of dodges the question a little bit, as probably I would, and then finally he kind of gets frustrated with the question, and finally he just responds, and he says, this is exact quote from Dan, he says, while my family and I believe in the biblical definition of marriage, we love and respect anyone who disagrees. I mean, I read that, and I'm like, man, that, what a humble, honest, respectful comment. Hey, this is what we believe. This is what me and my family do. This is how we do it. But hey, if you don't, we love and respect you. I don't know if you could get kind of more Jesus in response. Like, hey, this is, I mean, I guess Jesus would absolutely say, hey, like, this is the direction that you need to be going. But hey, we love and respect you. This is what we do, but we love and respect you. Well, that comment kicked off a firestorm within the media. Liberal pundits, they got a hold of it. Then, of course, the conservative pundits, they got a hold of it. And everybody's going back and forth, sorting it all out. And it just became this just firestorm of outrage in the media. And in particular, one group, a group called Campus Pride, led by a man named Shane Widmeyer, started to call for the boycott of Chick-fil-A in campuses all across the country and, and in franchises all across the country. And you may remember this. And in particular, Shane was taking issue with the fact that Chick-fil-A donates a portion of their profit to other 501c3 nonprofit organizations. And some of those organizations um, advocated some, some kind of terrible things towards the LGBT community. And so Shane took issue to this, and he started calling for the boycotting of all these college campus Chick-fil-A's. But what none of us knew, and what even Dan's own organization didn't know, is that Dan, unbeknownst to anybody, got Shane's cell phone number from a mutual business partner. And he reached out to Shane. One day he just called Shane up, out of the blue. And what started as kind of an awkward conversation, as you can probably imagine, slowly turned into more conversations and more conversations and text messages between the two men. And all this kind of culminated when Dan invited Shane to be his personal guest at the New Year's Eve Chick-fil-A Bowl. And Shane kind of cautiously accepted the invite. See, this would have been a major, major problem for both men. You've got Dan on the one hand, who's the centerpiece of a Christian-led business. He's well-known, his organization is well-known for their beliefs and their stances. And then you've got Shane on the other hand, the executive director and leader of one of the largest LGBT groups in the nation. And both men were well-known, and both men would have been seen together in public for the first time at this event. And it could have been a major disaster for either men. Two men, one gay and one straight, one liberal and one conservative, 
one an activist and one an evangelist. How on earth could they possibly come to some sort of understanding with these looming differences between them? And yet, they did. You see, shortly after the Chick-fil-A New Year's Eve uh, bowl, Shane went home. And Shane published a story in the Huffington Post. This is the two men right here, Dan and Shane. Shane posted an op-ed in the Huffington Post saying, Dan and me, my coming out story in support of Dan and Chick-fil-A. They've, two men have continued to stay friends from that date. Dan, on the other hand, went back to his organization, and they looked at all the different groups that they had been donating to, and it came to light that, in fact, some of these groups that they had been donating to did advocate violence towards the LGBT community. And Dan said that this is absolutely not something that we advocate. It's not something that we want to be in alignment with. And so shortly after, they reallocated close to $6 million in giving on an annual basis to other groups that truly did align with the Chick-fil-A brand, groups that focused on youth, education, marriage enrichment, and local communities. Dan later wrote about his friendship with Shane after this series of events. Every person goes through different phases of maturity, growth, and development, and it helps by recognizing the mistakes that you make. And you learn from those mistakes, and if not, you're just a fool. I'm thankful that I lived through it, and I learned a lot from it. Shane, on the other hand, wrote this of his friendship with Dan. He said, in the end, it's not about eating or not eating a chicken sandwich. It's about sitting down at a table together and sharing our views as human beings engaged in real, respectful, civil dialogue. Dan would probably call this act the definition of biblical hospitality. I would call it human decency. Now, this story doesn't end with Shane accepting Jesus, but what it does do is I think it perfectly illustrates kind of the world that we live in today. The media and so many around us desperately want to pit anybody and everybody against somebody else. If you thought that you were kind of in this group that was immune to it, chances are there's a group of whatever you're a group of that's against your group. I think this story also just illustrates Jesus. Dan, instead of just telling Shane the gospel, wanted to show him the gospel. And what that looked like is entering into a dialogue with a man that at face value had absolutely nothing in common with him. No agenda other than to simply understand the world from another person's perspective in the spirit of love and truth. And so we as Christians must change the narrative, you guys. We must change the narrative. We must become more known for what we're for than what we're against. So often, the Christian life is associated with, oh, you're against that, and you're against that, and you're against that. Instead of saying, hey, we know, hey, you're for people. You're for unity. You're for love. You're for grace. And so today, we're kicking off a new series called Us Versus Them, And that's what it's going to be. It's a three-week short series about love and truth, how they're intertwined together. You can't have one without the other and share the gospel effectively. We only need to look around for a short period of time. And you can see that, as I said, we're, we're 
divided into all sorts of different groups. There's men versus women. There's straight versus gay, liberal versus conservative, Americans versus immigrants, millennials versus baby boomers, Christians versus non-Christians, urban versus rural, pro this versus just about anything, anti that. As I said, you may be part of a pro-knitting group, and chances are there's an anti-knitting group out there somewhere. Add to this tension a 24-7 news cycle where constantly we're just given outrage after outrage after outrage, and we have to be outraged about something. Here's the deal. You can literally turn on the news first thing in the morning. News is on. Hey, news, tell me what I should be outraged about today, and the news will tell you. And then you and your people that are outraged about the same thing mobilize and you became, become ticked off for 24 hours, getting on Facebook or Twitter, letting the world know how outraged you are. And then tomorrow morning, the next morning, you'll wake up, click, news, tell me what I should be outraged about today, and the news will tell you. You know what that's called? There's an actual term for this. It's called recreational outrage. Recreational outrage. Being outraged has become a pastime for people. As much as I would like to say that we as Christ followers are immune to it, it's simply not the case, guys. In fact, I would say that some of the most insensitive and outrageous comments I've heard have come from fellow Christ followers. It's time, it's time to turn the news off if you have to. I had to go through a season where I literally turned it off. If you want to know what it feels like to be crazy, try to watch three major networks all within the span of about 30 minutes. You would think that they looked at three different events that happened that day. It's absolutely crazy. So here's the thing, though. These differences, these, these challenges that we face are not unique to our time. In fact, I would argue that the differences that we see today are the same differences that we've seen for millennia. It was like this before Jesus was on earth. It was definitely like this when Jesus was on earth, and it's here today. The difference, the difference, the difference is, is that Jesus showed us how it doesn't have to be this way. Jesus showed us how we can put aside our differences. Jesus showed us how we can not get wrapped up in the hate and the blame and the bigotry and the racism that we see so often in our society today. Jesus showed us how it could be different. So for the rest of today, we're going to look at one example of how Jesus showed that it can be different. So do me a favor. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. You may be familiar with this story. John chapter 4 is a story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And it's a story about how Jesus goes into Samaria and meets with this woman and has an interaction with her. But I think it helps to understand some of the context that we see in this story before we get into it. So you see, as I mentioned, Jesus goes into Samaria. Now, This would have been something that most Jews would have done everything they could have to avoid in Jesus' time. 
And in fact, I think we have a map. Samaria is just to the north of Judea. And often when Jews were leaving Judea and going to the northern province, they would go east across the Jordan River, then go north, and then go back west. They would loop around, all in an attempt to avoid even going into the area. And so we see this happening in Jesus' time. Jesus, is, Jesus makes this route a number of times in his ministry. And we see that he goes into Samaria as he's going to meet this Samaritan woman. And it says that, that Jesus says it, that he had to go, that he had to go through Samaria. Why did Jesus have to go? Well, we'll see in a minute that the reason that Jesus had to go is because Jesus came to show the world that he came for everybody. At the time, there was probably dialogue going on that, that Jesus was the Messiah, absolutely. But many Jews believe that, that the Messiah came for the Jews and not for anybody else. And so Jesus is going to use this illustration, this journey, to show that he came for everybody. So a little bit more context. We see in the Old Testament that um, Jacob had 12 sons, Joseph his favorite, and then 11 other brothers. And the 12 tribes of Israel come from these 12 brothers. And so the 12 tribes establish, and then later on in the history, in about 722, the Assyrians invade the northern region, and they take over. And they bring with them their pagan gods. And we see from the Old Testament that the, the Assyrians start to intermingle with the Jews in that region. And the Jews start to both worship the God of Israel as well as the pagan gods from Assyria. And then in about 600 B.C., the Babylonians invade the southern region. And they... Um, remove a large portion of the Jews in that area. And then many years later, the Jews come to repatriate that, that uh, area. And by that time, uh, the Samaritans, as they would become known in the northern region, uh, tried to basically prevent that from happening. And you can read that whole story in 2 Kings. We just went through a lot of that in our Rebuilt series. You can kind of read through what that looked like. And so what started out, as one group of people eventually gets split into two. And after about 500 years, the bitterness grows between these two groups of people to the point that there's actually physical violence between them. They hate each other. They don't want to have anything to do with each other. The Samaritans to the north, the Jews to the south, and they, they fight. Um, Josephus tells us that Samaritans would take human remains, human bones, and throw them into the temples to defile the temples. They would spit on each other. They would kill each other, all in the spirit of division. And so it's under this context, it's under this history that we see that Jesus is about ready to go into Samaria. And you can now kind of understand why this would not have been an ideal situation, why he would have had to go into Samaria when he could have just gone around like everybody else did. So... Jesus is going to go into Samaria, and in the, in the text it tells us that he goes purposely into a city called Sachar, and near the well of Jacob. So it brings us full circle around to Jacob's well. So here he is in the region of Judea, 
going around, or excuse me, going straight north into Samaria to the, to the town of Sachar. Get that out. And he goes to the, the well of Jacob, Jacob's well. And as he approaches the well, he's weary from travel. He's essentially traveling through a, a desert-type climate and area. And he gets to the well, and he's waiting there, and a woman approaches. Now, there's some context here that, that we need to understand as well. Typically, women would go fetch the water for their homes. And they would typically do that early in the morning and late in the evening. And we can understand from the context here, from what the, the writer tells us but doesn't explicitly spell out, that this woman's coming around the noon hour. And the noon hour in the Jewish calendar would have been sometime around our lunchtime up until early evening. And we know that she's likely an outcast within her own society because she's coming during that time. And that would have been a time that nobody else would have been at the well. She was an outcast. She was not welcome in the social gathering that, that all the other women would have, uh, would have been there. And so we see Jesus in encounter with this woman. And Jesus says to the woman, hey, may I have a cup of water? Now, again, some more context. Jesus was forbidden under Jewish law from interacting with the Samaritans. They wouldn't have even had anything to do with them. On top of that, she's a woman. Again, Jewish law would have said, hey, Jews do not interact with women in public. They don't speak to them. They don't interact with them. And women were not allowed to address men in public. In fact, some of the Pharisees took this so far, <laughs> this is hilarious, they took it so far that they became known as the bruised Pharisees. The bruised Pharisees. The bruised Pharisees took this so far that when they were in public and they saw a woman coming their way, they would literally close their eyes, put their hands over their eyes, and fumble around so that they wouldn't see a woman. And then they would run into stuff, they would trip over stuff, and so they became known as the bruised Pharisees. Idiots, right? Side note. I have seen some husbands try to use this tactic within their own home. It did not work well for them. I don't see you, honey. I don't, I don't hear you, honey. Uh, it's not a good move. Don't try it. But Jesus, Jesus enters this dialogue with the Samaritan woman. He says, hey, woman, may I have a cup of water? And the woman responds exactly like you would expect her to. She says, you are a Jew. And I am a Samaritan woman. Two classifications of people that Jesus should not be interacting with. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Immediately, the woman points out these two cultural and religious differences that in that time would have prevented Jesus from having anything to do with her. And as Jesus does so often, we see him take a totally different path. He interacts with the woman, but he's going to take what could be just a plain conversation, and he's going to dump some major truth on this lady. Jesus shifts the conversation, and immediately he says to her, Hey, if only you knew the gift God has for you, and to whom you're speaking, you would be asking me for the living water that brings eternal life. And the woman's confused. She's not kind of grasping what Jesus is saying. And you've got to give her credit. She says, That sounds great. Can I have some of this eternal water? Maybe she's thinking, if I have this eternal water, 
I don't have to subject myself to the ridicule of coming out of my home in the middle of the day when everybody else is doing their thing and being an outcast in society. In fact, she says so. Give me this water that I might not have to be thirsty again and come here. And so the conversation continues between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. He says next, he says, hey, go get your husband. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus didn't do a very good job of pivoting from one topic to the next right there. He's like, hey, can I have a cup of water? She says, why would you ask for water? And then Jesus is like, yo, go get your husband. But there's context here again. And this is something that I personally have really been working on and I would challenge all of us to do. If it doesn't make sense to us as contemporary readers, there's almost 100% chance that we don't have the correct perspective and context of what's actually going on. You see, here's the thing. In biblical times, we see this over and over again in the Old Testament. In biblical times, when a man in a foreign land goes to a well, he finds a bride. We see it in Genesis 24. Abraham sends his servants to find a bride for Isaac at a well. We see it in Genesis 29. Jacob finds his wife, Rachel, at a well. We see it in Exodus. Moses finds his wife at a well. So single fellas in Old Testament went to wells to find their brides. So in that context, we start to understand, hey, you need to go find your husband. And of course, the woman, if you know the story, she responds and she says, hey, I, I, don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right, you don't. You've had five. And you're living with a man now, you're sixth, who's not your husband. So there's context there. Now, historians argue a little bit about this point. It's possible that she had five actual husbands. That is possible. It would have been fairly unlikely. It was generally considered taboo to marry somebody who had been married before. Um, but it's possible. Others believe that, that, that Jesus is showing this woman that she has um, had priorities before Jesus in her life. So, again, context-wise, in the chapter immediately prior to this, John talks about how Jesus is the bridegroom. And so Jesus is saying, hey, go find your husband. And the woman's like, hey, I've had five husbands. And he's like, yeah, you have. And so it's at that point that the woman says, okay, you must be a prophet. How do you know these things? You must be a prophet. And in the moment, you must be a prophet. Your people, oh, so your people say that your people worship in Jerusalem and my people worship on Mount Gerizim. Again, she's in this us versus them. Your people, my people. You do this, we do this. Your people do this, my people do this. You're different than I am. You worship there, my people worship here. She's in this us versus them mindset. And Jesus begins to tell her, hey, the time is coming very soon that the place isn't going to matter. As excited as we are about our own church home, the place is not going to matter. You can worship Jesus in a church. You can worship him in your workplace. You can worship him as you're driving to work. You can worship him as your kids are driving you nuts. Whatever. And so finally Jesus says, hey, there's a time and place coming where your people are going to worship in spirit and truth wherever they are. It's not going to matter. 
And the woman finally comes around and she says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. She, she knows this. It's part of their history as well as the Jews. And this is my favorite part. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. Write to her, I am the Messiah, woman. I have come that I will be able to save everyone. The fact that I'm here in Samaria, when I could have gone around and avoided the whole group of people here, I purposely came here so that the whole world could see that I was coming for everyone. In a different translation, and I like this even better, he responds saying, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I, the one speaking to you, am he. And so in a simple story, we simply see how Jesus shows that he's coming for everyone. He's coming for everybody. He's coming for you. He's coming for me. He's coming for people that look like us and don't look like us, people that dress like us and people that don't dress like us, people that vote like us and people that don't vote like us. He's coming for everyone. And we need to be mindful of that. Different races, different creeds, He's coming for everyone. Jesus came to tear down walls between people. He came to tear down walls for, for people. And in a country now where we're putting up what physical walls, virtual walls, we need to be mindful of that. Well, who is Jesus calling us to reach out to? Again, context is king when we read the Bible, guys. And in the, in, the, in the biblical account, Jesus comes to this woman and he says, hey, may I have a cup of water? And the, the modern day equivalent to that would be somebody that doesn't look like you, doesn't dress like you, doesn't vote like you, has nothing in common like you, and you sit down next to him and say, hey, what's your name? The modern day equivalent of may I have a cup of water is, hey, what is your name? As I was doing research on my message, I, I wanted to come up with an illustration that, that could best kind of show what this looked like. And I came across this, this video of a tightrope walker. And he was on one side of a building and a hundred or so feet on the other side was another building 20 stories below him and they were kind of showing all the intricate detail of what's required to walk this thin line between the two buildings and the the commentators in the video they spent a lot of time talking about his feet and how critical the placement of his feet were and they showed his feet and the verse just came to mind, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news. And this man would take one intentional step after the other, being oh so careful to make sure that he placed his foot exactly where it needed to be. And before he would take another step, he would be oh so careful to make sure that he knew exactly where the next foot needed to go. And on top of his carefully placed feet, he had a bar that he carried. You've seen it. Big, long, heavy, 15-foot bar. And that bar helped him stay balanced, that he wouldn't fall off the rope. And I just thought to myself, isn't this a great illustration of how we should be carrying the good news to people? 
way out here on this end is love. Can I tell you, love, as you're interacting with people without truth, has no authority. And way out on this end of the bar is truth. And truth without love can be harsh. And when they work together and they balance the bar perfectly, the guy is able to walk across this very, very thin rope to get to the other side. Guys, there are people all over this world that need the good news. They're on the other side. If we just throw this in their face without love or relationship, I could tell you it doesn't go well. But if we just show love and deference to their lifestyle without showing them what the gospel says, then ultimately what does that do? We have to balance them oh so carefully. We desperately want life to be easy, don't we? We want the gospel to be easy. We want somebody like myself from stage to say, hey, this is what to believe about this group of people. Hey, this is our stance on this. And while that can be good at times, can I tell you, anytime the words those people come out of your mouth, you are on shaky ground. Shaky ground. What if instead every situation, regardless, every situation, as we're sharing the good news with somebody, we treat it as its own unique engagement because everybody is different. And we carefully place our feet one in front of the other as we build the relationship with that person, sharing truth and love as we go across. My encouragement today is that this church becomes a church that's all about people from every race, from every creed, rich or poor, black or white, that we would not use the words those people. It absolutely breaks my heart to think that in churches across the country that there is an open wound of racism. And that might come across as a little harsh, but the reality is is that, man, we live in a culture now where in a lot of places we've replaced racism against African-American people with racism against Hispanic people. They're different than us. They come from a different country. They are here for our jobs. You know what? Maybe they are. The reality is, is that we need to love everyone, and they need to know the truth. And the only way that we do that is carefully listening to the Holy Spirit as we reach out step by step by step, balancing truth and love as we engage with people all around us. Will you pray with me? Father God, Lord, we, we want to be a church that's all about your people. Or do we want to be a church that is inclusive, a church that loves people, but Lord, as you know, love is only part of the equation. They must know the truth. And so, Lord, we just pray for the wisdom and the discernment, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be upon each and every person in this room as we carefully engage with the communities around us, sharing your love and your truth. Lord, we want to be all about you. And we want to be known as a community, as a church that's all about you. Lord, that.
it might not be that we're known for what we're against, but that what we are known for what we are for, for who we are for, and for what we do this. And that name is one name only, and that's your name, Jesus. Lord, we love you. Lord, we want everyone to experience what those of us who call us your Savior experience. Jesus, we just pray that there would be an anointing on each and every person in this room. Lord, that they would know your name. Lord, and that they would use your Holy Spirit to build relationships with people that aren't like us, that don't look like us, that don't speak like us. Lord, that we might take your example of the Samaritan woman and know that you came for everyone. And that it's our job to share that good news. Beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news, Jesus. Thank you.